You're listening to Fire and Trainers Podcast, Season 4, Episode 23, published on February 7th, 2027. This episode, we'll be talking to Matt Little about his approach to training in his new book. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. Sit back and relax. We're going to have a great episode this week. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com and learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. All certified instructors can apply for FTA coverage. Remember, for listening to this podcast, you can get 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by KSG Holsters. They are professional-grade Kydex handcrafted here in the United States of America. They are available for a large variety of firearms. They are purpose-built one-by-one for comfort and concealability. All KSG Holsters are Enigma-compatible. There are a lot of customization options, so you can order the holster that fits your needs exactly. Remember, KSG Holsters. We bring this podcast support in the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, Every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Matt Little from Greybeard Actual. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for taking time to share your thoughts with our audience today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you bringing me on. Great. Well, you've come out with a new book recently, but before we get into talking about your new book, can you give our listeners a little bit about who Matt Little is and what you do in the 2A community? Sure, absolutely. So, for me, this all kind of it came about with a bunch of different influences, right? Um, when I was a kid, I was very competitive in martial arts on the national level. And that kind of informed the way I look at training and conflict moving forward. I joined the Army at 18, um, wound up making my way to 20th Special Forces Group after some time on active duty. 20th Group is an SF unit that's in the National Guard, right? And I decided to stay in the National Guard when I got my tab and my Green Beret because nothing was really going on in the Army at the time. It was right after Mogadishu and everybody was basically benched. So I decided I was going to stay in 20th Group and be a part-time SF guy. And this is before 9-11, right? And go be a Chicago cop and get my action that way and get all the, the training and the <laughs> overseas missions teaching, you know, the peacetime SF missions through 20th group. So I spent 27 years in the army altogether and 21 years in the Chicago police department. Shortly after I joined CPD, 9-11 happened and I wound up basically spending the next 20 years bouncing back and forth between deployments and training with SF and being a Chicago cop. Um, Did a bunch of things on Chicago PD worked, uh, was in the special operations section as a patrolman, worked narcotics and housing projects, worked gangs and organized crime, was a supervisor in the detective bureau and ran like our, our SWAT light for detectives there. And then I finished out my career back on SWAT as the training coordinator for the Chicago SWAT team. So, and right around like the last five years, four years of my career on CPD, I finally decided to listen to a bunch of people I knew. Um, I I knew not a, well, maybe not a bunch, but I knew a few people that were Grandmaster shooters in USPSA, one that was also a Chicago SWAT cop and one that was in 20th Special Forces group with me. And I was always comfortably the best shooter among my peers unless I was around these guys. 
So I figured they must be onto something, right? I resisted it for a while because I'm stubborn. And then I, I was like, fine, I'm going to go compete. You guys keep telling me to compete. I'm going to see what's there. So I started shooting USPSA and found out very quickly that despite all this hard work I'd done up to that point, I was getting my lunch money taken by like IT guys and construction workers and engineers who didn't carry a gun for a living. So I could have either just, you know, said, oh, that's not tactical. That's not the real world. It's a game. And done like a lot of guys do when they do that, when they go from military or law enforcement and get stomped at a USPSA match. Or I could just set my ego aside and go, hey, these guys are better than me. I need to figure out why they're better than me and figure out what I need to do. Right. So kind of the combination of those things is what led to my philosophy on training, firearms training, combatives, all of that stuff. And the idea behind it is that I learned something different from each of those things, right? Like I learned some things from being a fighter as a teenager in my early 20s. I learned things from the military that I didn't learn from the police department. I learned things from being a cop in a big city that I didn't learn from the military. And I learned things about how to shoot and how to train from being a competitive shooter that I didn't learn anywhere else either. So if you put all of those together, you get where the genesis of like both the book I wrote, the training classes I teach, and just like kind of my general philosophy on all of this, that's where it all comes from. Mm. Well, that's uh, pretty cool. And uh, you definitely have a very, very good background, I think, for uh, teaching or to, to write the book that you have the way is in the training. And uh, I've got a copy here and found a very um, insightful because I've seen a lot of different books, read a lot of different books on, on shooting, but yours takes a completely different tact when it comes to the training perspective. I mean, I've seen a lot of books go on to just you know, don't smash, smash the trigger, hold the sights uh, steady. And then, you know, the bullets will go where you want them to go. And that overlooks um, quite a bit, but you break things down quite a bit more. Can you give us a little bit of, you know, how you break it, break it down in the book? Sure. Well, I mean, and the book, so here's like kind of a general concept of the book, right? Is I was very heavily influenced when I was younger by things like, uh, you know, The Art of War, The Book of Five Rings, like all these classic like martial arts books, right? That weren't just about technique. They were about more than just that. Um, Bruce Lee's Tao of Jeet Kune Do. And even in the shooting world, um, Brian Enos, you know, Practical Shooting Beyond Fundamentals is very much like that too. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. I kind of wanted to, you know, I, I'm not giving... I'm not giving strict, you know, you must put your hand here. You must move your hands this way. I talk about principles and how they underline technique, but I wanted it to be about more than just technique, right? And I wanted mm -hmm. there to be strategy, but I wanted it to be about more than just that too. So basically I wrote it as if I was trying to give somebody kind of a roadmap for their own journey but not take away the fact that their own journey will be uniquely theirs, you know? And I wanted to touch on all those different aspects that go into it, you know, mindset, philosophy, leadership, awareness, physical fitness, and obviously shooting, you know, both technique and then also tactics as well. Um, as far as, you know, breaking it down. So the shooting piece, 
I talk about in the section that I, I call the craft, right? I talk about shooting technique per se and like how to, how to think about your technique and how to make it optimized for you. And rather than give like, like a diagram, you know, in the normal shooting book where it's like five different photos and it's, you know, first this, then this and this, without a lot mm-hmm. of explanation as to what makes it work that way or why it should work that way. Because one of the dangers I think with shooting is we imitate the way someone else's technique looks. But that doesn't tell the whole story. You can't look at a world champion shooter and understand from the way their grip looks how they're getting the recoil management they have. Because there's more to it than just the way it appears from the outside. There's the grip pressures. There's, you know, the, the grip shape. There's all these different things. There's tracking the sights. There's all the stuff that goes on into that that you can't see from the outside looking at. So I tried to talk kind of more about those things, physical reference points for your technique, you know, how to determine ways you can make it consistent, repeatable every time under stress, ways to make it more efficient, ways to think about your technique so you can make it more efficient. And the other thing about technique is that a lot of people want to be very dogmatic about it. You know, you have to grip the pistol exactly the way I grip the pistol, even if your hands don't look like mine. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I have orangutan hands. My thumbs don't even really oppose. You know, these are not the hands of a human being. I'm basically a missing link. <laughs> My wife is petite and has much smaller hands than me. Of course, her grip on a pistol doesn't look anything like mine, right? But she follows the same principles. Am I making sense? Mm-hmm. Yep, most definitely. And I've, I've, I think I've applied, used the same kind of teaching technique as when I've had some people with some uh, challenges uh, when they're missing digits or they're having arthritis in their hands, you know, older shooters, things like that. Because I can go along and I, I get big meat hooks. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I can crush a grip really, really easy because of my size. But when you've got arthritis and you've got pains and coming and when you're trying to grip too hard, that's when you've got to go along and realize what's the important part to it. Maybe, maybe crushing the grip isn't the key part to it. Maybe it is going along and making sure you're gripping it well enough to hold the sights on target and understand the principles better than just going along and, and, like I said before, just crush the grip and slap the triggers or, you know, hit the tr- trigger nice and smooth type of thing and understand the principles there. So, yes. Yep. And the other thing I tried to do was, so here's, here's another bit of the kind of the backstory on me, but it ties into what I'm about to say. Right. So when I started competing in USPSA, um, they rank everybody. D is the lowest. Then it goes CBA master grandmaster. Right. Well, I made master in just a few months, but it didn't translate to my performance because the reason I made master was because of all the stand and shoot training I'd done on my own and as part of SF and as on the SWAT team and everything else. And the fact that I'd really worked on it hard to get good at it, but there was a lot more to being a well-rounded shooter than just that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I also figured out that even though the way I had been shooting up until then would get me to that point relatively easily. There were some real limiting factors in the way I'd been taught and the way my technique was that weren't going to allow me to go any further. So I went through this very painful process over several years of kind of trying to figure out what I was doing wrong, why I couldn't get any better than I already was. 
And it led to me like literally deconstructing my shooting and my training and kind of reassembling it from the ground up. Right. And like, before we started recording, you and I were talking about, you know, adult learning, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I did a deep dive when I was doing this into like sports psychology, you know, exercise and physiology, like all these, I was trying to find the answers as to why I couldn't get to the skill level I knew I was capable of. And then I realized it was because of the things I had always done that weren't going to get me there, right? The way I'd always trained, the way my technique was. So not only did I deconstruct my technique and try to fix that, but I totally redid the way I did my firearms training. And that's something that I'm really proud of. I think it's a really good system. And I, I outlined that in pretty great detail in the book, like the way I classify drills and how the different kinds of drills fit into your program. And even more importantly, how to program your shooting training like an athlete programs are training, right? Because what happens all too often is we go to the range and we'll pick like whatever drill we saw on YouTube that looks really cool. Mm-hmm. And we'll grind that out until we feel like we made some improvement on it. But we're not looking at how that fits into what we need to do to make ourselves better shooters. You see what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. it's, we need a plan. You need to go there like, you know, if you were, if you were, you know, an athlete looking to qualify for the Olympics in, you know, decathlon, right? You wouldn't just go to the playground and do pull-ups and throw a javelin. You know what I mean? Like you'd have a training plan in place, you know, to make yourself mm-hmm. better where you attack your weaknesses and shore up your strengths and you cycle your training and you template it. And the training should look different when you get close to an event than it does earlier on. You know, you, you lead up to a peak as a competitor, at least, right? Mm-hmm. As a soldier, you can lead up to a peak for a deployment. Now, law enforcement, they kind of have the burden of constant preparedness. They don't really get to have an off season the same way, but there's still ways to program your training if you're law enforcement where you're never really neglecting anything, but you're also building to a new goal, right? And for a civilian, it kind of depends on, on their lifestyle, right? It might even be more, it might be more like the law enforcement type where, okay, I'm going to kind of work on everything all the time, but do like a conjugate periodization where I'm, I'm working more on one thing than the other and I'm waving them up and down, right? Until I get progress across the board. Or if it's someone that feels like they can afford to kind of detrain a little bit, and rebuild fundamentals and then go up to a new peak, then they can approach it that way. But you need a plan in place to get better. Otherwise your training will stall out far short of your potential. Yeah, that's good insight. I've heard people go along reference like Michael Jordan, you know, he didn't sit there, you know, he would do free throws over and over. Uh, but also uh, Michael Jordan would go along and, you know, practice doing three, three pointers from various places where he knew he wasn't as strong so that he could get, get better in those. And that was part of his uh, training curriculum. And, you know, something that we should consider too, if, if we're shooting a lot of things with our, you know, primary hand and not our uh, offhand, maybe we should shoot more with offhand, or if we're shooting two-handed, shoot more with one-handed, you know, again, try to figure out what we need to have on our training program to get to where we want to do. And that all depends on if you're a competitor, you're going to be much more focused on, okay, I want to be able to complete this stage in this amount of time. And this is, and then deconstructing, like you said, to get to that point that the, that you can go along and hit the goals you want to, 
by you know doing things a little differently than what you had up to that point because the old adage that if you don't change anything nothing changes kind of applies when it comes to shooting if you've do it the way you always have then don't be surprised that you don't get any better than what you've always had and that's um that's very good insight um to be able to go along and deconstruct yourself and then rebuild it because uh that's tough when you when you've shot for a while it is it, it was it was a very painful process it really was you know and i think it's important too like another insight i got and this was from uh my training partner when i first started competing for about a year or so until he moved to Florida. And then shortly after I moved out of Illinois too, but my buddy, Les, Les Kismartoni, he's now a national champion in IDPA and he's, he's like a top 20 USPSA guy as well. But when we would work together, we would spend a lot of training time on basically building consistency under stress. And I think that we tend to ignore that a lot on the tactical side of the house. And it was a huge insight for me realizing that that was like a really, like you really need to do that to be able to apply your shooting when it counts under stress. You know, we do all these drills where we're standing there and we're blazing away, but it's, they're all kind of what I call isolation drills, you know, in the tactical community. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we go straight from that to like a testing event without anything in between but you also need to do experimentation stuff where you're, you're literally experimenting with your technique. And that's something that I was afraid to do because I wanted to get, it was, it's really counterintuitive. Like you feel like if I experiment, I'll slow myself down because I'm changing things. And if I just imitate this guy, cause he's really good, I'll get there faster, but it doesn't really work that way because what got him there may not be what gets me there. Right. Mm-hmm. And you've got to figure out kind of how this stuff works. Because like I said before, looking at it from the outside doesn't really tell you what's making it work for that shooter, right? But then what I call combination drills, which like I said, I Les had a drill that was a combination drill that was phenomenal, right? So I kind of, he was the genesis for me thinking of this. But the idea is whenever you string tasks together, your performance on each individual task degrades right? It's just sports psychology. It just, it is. Mm-hmm. Takes time for the brain to process. Yep. So the more and more complex a series of tasks, the lower your performance becomes. And then also the higher your rate of error becomes, the more often you make mistakes, right? But the good news is that both those traits, both those attributes are trainable. So if you train the right way, you get better and better at stringing together more and more complex series of tasks before you run off the rails, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't spend the time training that. And it's a very different way of training than pushing on your draw or pushing on your reload or pushing on a build roll, right? Those things are like, you're really pushing the limits of your performance there. But the way you approach what I call combination drills, working on consistency and performance under stress, it's it's a different way of training those skills. They gives you kind of that, that mental ability I call it bandwidth, like bandwidth in your computer. You know, you can hold more tasks in there. Your processor is stronger, right? Mm-hmm. But you can make a stronger processor for yourself if you train that attribute. And all too often, whether it's civilian, you know, CCL holders or law enforcement or military, all too often, we don't typically train that way. We train, like I said, a lot of stuff in isolation, and then we test it 
And we wonder why we can't do as well on the test as we do when we're doing just that skill. Mm-hmm. And that's why. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the I've seen results like that from a civilian side when you do like force on force training to where people can be very good about going along and, you know, shooting the target. You know, they they can, you know, uh, first shot is under under one second. But when they need to go along and identify where in the confrontation can are they legally allowed to go along, draw their draw their firearm and then be able to shoot and then be able to tie into that. It's not just shoot, but it's move and shoot, assess, shoot again, you know, keeping all keeping these tasks together. And that's where you've got to you've got to stress test yourself to build up that bandwidth. Uh, to say the least, in order to properly maintain, because what happens, you know, in most of the uh, videos, like John Korea with Active Self Protection, he showed most people go go along, they draw their firearm, they fire shots, and then the person runs away. They haven't thought about moving. They haven't thought about getting to cover. They haven't thought about any of those uh, additional things, which uh, comes back to bite them every once in a while in the videos to where he points out that, hey, they shot well, but since they didn't move, they ended up, uh, you know, their their friends or this uh, bad guy ends up getting a few uh, lucky shots in before he runs out the front door of the convenience store. Yeah, movement's life. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. If your hands are moving, your, your feet better be moving, too. That's that's for sure. Now, would you go along? I've I've heard that kind of bandwidth be called myelinization. Would you would you say it's similar to it as far as a brain going along and uh, you know be getting used to recognizing certain fact uh, patterns and be able to execute them quicker, better? No, um, myelinization is actually more along with the isolation drills. Okay, that's that's forming the neural pathways for a particular skill, right? So like if you watch someone the first time they learn how to draw from a holster and it's just all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And then you see that same person after five years of dedicated training and that draw is as efficient and fast as can be. That's what myelinization refers to. It's, it's cleaning up that neural pathway for that one particular skill. Um, no, the term for this, and you know, I had it on the tip of my tongue when I was talking about myelinization. Yeah, it'll it'll come to me in a minute, but it's okay. there. There is a term that fits it though, and it's it's more about you're not the myelinizations for the individual subtask, right? The individual skill, right? But I think it's almost like you're asking about two different things. Like in one case, you need to have what they call chunking. That's it. Sports okay. psychologists okay. call it chunking. Chunking. Okay. Chunking. So basically, chunking is when you have in your brain, you have these chunks or sets of skill, right? And then over time, by training these long, complex series of skills, your body learns to fit the chunks in wherever they need to fit, almost like a jigsaw puzzle, right? So, you know, for one response, you may have, you know, a draw while turning 90 degrees and moving forward rapidly, right? Then the next set of skills for that particular situation you find yourself in might be shooting on the move, right? You know, and then you might have a target transition of, you know, that that extra bad guy winds up showing up, right? So what your brain does is when you give yourself variable 
sets of tasks, like variable sequences of tasks over time, your body learns to take those chunks and plug them into where they need to be. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it can assemble the building blocks in whatever sequence you need because it's used to doing that because you give yourself these random sequences of tasks over time and make them more and more complex. And that goes back to kind of the combination drill concept that I was talking about. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, the myelization are the single, you know, focus drills. And then you got the chunking, which is the c- combining of those single drills into more, um, complex series of tasks. Uh, yeah. yeah. Complex series of tasks, which I think is something that we as instructors need to, you know, keep in mind too that we don't try to overload our students too fast, too early because they need to, they need to go along and master those, uh, you know, primary skills first before we ask them to start going along and doing a whole bunch of complex that's where you know when we start talking about with new students how to draw we take draw very slowly you know you you put it back in the holster very slowly and you know we practice that until people can do it very repetitively very safely for it because when we start introducing moving and shooting uh on the go you want to make sure they're drawing and and holstering, you know, properly and not going along and, you know, running along and looking down and seeing, seeing where their holster is or, you know, other dangerous uh, steps like that, that could uh, really mess up your training day. Well, and like good example of that too, right. Is, you know, everybody wants to do vehicle stuff, you know, fighting in and around vehicles. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to CQB. Right. But the cold hard truth is, is that most people don't have a sufficient level of shooting skill yet to really learn those tasks. Like you need the individual hard skills of the shooting to be subconsciously competent before you can start doing what people say is advanced. It's really not advanced, right? It's really just all advanced is, is more and more complex combinations of basics, right? You're still doing the basics. You're mm-hmm. still doing more and more complex sequences, you're doing more efficiently. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. But most people aren't ready for that sort of training because they haven't worked on their shooting enough. And it's, it's just, uh, I mean, it's like I said, it's the cold, hard truth. You know, people don't like hearing it, but it's, it's true for most people. You need a high level of subconscious competence at shooting to work on some of these things, especially in life art. Like simunitions, I mean, I can see doing simunitions earlier on. They won't be as good at it, but when you're talking about civilians who carry concealed, you also want to give them some sort of exposure to that pretty early on so they understand the reality of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that you're, yes, their shooting skills aren't high enough yet, but that's not going to stop them from potentially having to protect themselves. So you need to give them something, Mm -hmm. you know, but like some of the stuff, you know, live fire CQB, live fire, you know, vehicle stuff. Most people simply don't have the requisite level of skill for that. Yep. And you definitely, uh, you see that when you're doing, uh, when I see that when I do public courses where you've always got to teach to the lowest common denominator and bring them up to the level you need them to in class or excuse them if, uh, if they're, if they're too low to bring them up to the level they need to be in class before you go into those advanced advanced skills, because those advanced skills have the opportunity to, to introduce danger 
risked not only to the shooter, but also to the other participants and or to you, uh, you know, keep, you know, you got to keep that in mind. And, and once again, it's not that, I mean, no task you're doing with a firearm is substantially different than your fundamentals. But the problem is when you layer in the complexity of all the other things you have to do. And when you string more and more of the stuff together and you put it in an environment where safety really has to be, you know, subconsciously adhered to, right. Mm-hmm. It has to be intuitive for the individual. Things start falling apart. And it's, it's like when I used to talk about CQB with guys, you know, with SWAT guys and it's, the cold hard truth is if you can't shoot at a very high level without having to think about it at all, then you're going to have difficulty in the shoot house because now you're thinking about the shooting when you need to be thinking about your sector of fire, where your teammates are inside the structure, all these other things that are very, very important, especially in a live fire run. Right. Mm-hmm. And if your brain is on panic mode because you don't want to shoot a no shoot because and you don't think you're a very good shot, you're not going to be able to stay on top of all those other things. Right. Mm-hmm. And then think about the carryover for real life. If you're defending yourself, if I have to think about the shooting in a gunfight, I'm way behind the power curve. Right. Mm-hmm. The shooting needs to happen like, like software that runs in the back of your computer without a window open. You know what I mean? Like your antivirus software. It's always running in the background, but you don't see it. It does what it needs to do, uh, you know, but it does it, you know, subconsciously, literally. Exactly. Now, obviously, when you're training your shooting, you think about it to work on it, right? Especially when you're shooting stuff in isolation, you know, doing the isolated skills that I talked about. But that's in training. You've got to learn to apply it without the conscious thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think from a civilian uh, concealed carrier, uh, you know, they've got to learn what the parameters are, you know, that where they can do certain things. So they've, you know, besides just being able to shoot, they also need to have a very good understanding about, you know, like you said, sectors of fire where innocents are around and also the legality of doing certain things. And that's where, you know, I go along and burst a lot of first time concealed carry holders. And that's why, I, you know, recommend if you can avoid it, avoid it at all costs. Because if you're not, if you haven't really, really baked that into your subconscious, you could potentially make a mistake. And, you know, that mistake's not going to be one of those things where, okay, you get one less point. It's, you could potentially, you know, worst case, go to prison, or if nothing else, you're going to be going along living that, living with regret for the rest of your life. And those, those are all things that have got to be programmed subconsciously on top of, uh, be able to go along, shoot accurately and effectively to stop whatever the threat is that you're, you know, that you've encountered. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I spent my entire adult life being professionally conversant with violence. Right. And the last thing I ever want to do, if I can avoid it is being another gunfight because it's, no matter how good you are, it's too easy to lose, right? Mm-hmm. Or even if you don't lose, it's too easy for things to go south. You know, it's it's not something you should, you know, it shouldn't be bravado. It shouldn't be ego. No matter your skill level, it should be, if I have to, I will, but I'm not, I'm not going to seek this out, right? I'm not going to make it happen. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Everybody can have that, you know, that one day that they win. And if that's the bad guy, that's a, a really bad day for you. And at the same time, if you have that one off day to where all of a sudden you miss a shot or something like that, or, um, you know, hit an innocent, you know, again, that's going to be a really, really bad day for you. And you know, the stakes are pretty darn high when it comes to, you know, gunfights all the way around. Yes, absolutely. Well, Matt, one of the things in your book that I thought was really helpful, you've got a bunch of shooting standards in the back of the book. Can you talk about those and why you, why you uh, added those to the book? Yeah. So I, I'm a really big believer in testing yourself and not in a vacuum. Right. Um, once again, coming from the worlds I came from, right. I mean, there's, there's certain SWAT teams I've dealt with across the country who don't ever really train with anyone else. So they don't really have an accurate perception of how good they actually are because they're comparing it internally, not externally. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are all shooting challenges that anybody can do and they can see how they stack up compared to other people. Right. They get an objective standard on how well they shoot. Um, and, you know, I've, there's some in there that I haven't had the chance to do for score. Like I would love to do the fast coin with Ernest Langdon and I haven't had a chance yet. I really want to make that happen. But most of the ones in there I've done myself in past. And each one of those taught me something about my shooting and helped me learn things. Right. So testing yourself gives you feedback for your training. And I'm a big believer in using it for that purpose, you know, using it to figure out what your deficiencies are, what your strengths are, and how to maybe tweak your training and how to get better, right? So I think all of them have a lot of value. And I use those because they're widely known. And like I said, it's objective. There's, there's a good amount of data on each of those on how people have passed them or not passed them and, you know, how it shakes out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the one thing it's good to look at standards for is when you go along and think about it from the standpoint of, okay, I'm just competing against myself. It's like, yes, you're competing against yourself. But if you want to see how you're stacking up against other people and other people are the good guys and the other people are also bad guys because the bad guys, let's face it, they could be doing, they could be training and doing the same shooting as you're doing. So there's a possibility that they could be, you know, doing the same thing and being just on doing the exact doing the exact same thing you're doing and that's where you want to go along and see where you stand up because if you can shave a tenth of a second off by changing your grip or get or shave a you know another tenth off of how you acquire your sights those types of things that might that might be in your favor because hopefully the bad guys haven't put as much thought as that into it but there's you know, don't think we're the only ones that are out there training no absolutely and Matter of fact, one of the things I used to tell my SWAT guys is that I wanted them to train for their mirror image because they, they tended to get, it's an easy thing to do, right? If you're on a SWAT team in a big city, it's easy to get a little complacent because honestly, most of the bad guys you run into are nowhere near your level of skill. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's really easy for people to get kind of cocky about that and start training for what they've already encountered rather than training for the worst day. And I really think you should train for the worst day, not for the easy day. Right. So I used to always tell them to try to, you know, train, train like you're training to fight yourself, not, you know, not some mugger or crack dealer who doesn't train, 
Train like you're training to fight yourself. Train like you're training to fight somebody who dry fires, who lifts weights, who does martial arts, who competes in shooting. Train for that guy. And then if you run into the guy who's just a mugger with no training, it'll be a pretty easy day because you've trained for something much harder. But if you only train for the mugger and you run into something harder, you're not going to have the skills you need. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you one example. When I was taking a uh, law enforcement course a couple of years ago, there were about 15 of us in the class and they had us do beginning, beginning of the class, do a shooting qualification because they want to see how well we could, we improved at by the end of the class after three days. And I can remember myself, another, another guy there probably beat most everybody else by a full two seconds on the uh, shooting qualification. And I was actually surprised because there were some pretty young officers there. And I thought, okay, these guys have got me by 20 plus years. They've got to, they got to be able to shoot pretty darn good. And when I beat them by close to two seconds, we were talking and they were asking me, it's like, so what do you do to your gun to make it shoot that fast? And yeah, I told him, Hey, it's a stock Glock. I mean, I, you know, it's, it is exactly as if you went along to the store and bought it. And they're like, really? It's, and I said, I can tell you what the difference is. Me and the other guy knew how to run the trigger. The other guys were doing full strokes. And I said, if you go along and know at what point you can pull the trigger a second time, because there were a few very rapid fire shots in, in this drill, it'll improve your shooting. By the, by the end of three days, those uh, those younger officers had learned, and instead of being full two seconds faster than they were, we were a quarter second faster than they were. And it's it's one of those to where if they hadn't been around other people who could shoot and shoot well, because the other, uh, one of the other the older officer he actually shot better than I did, but it was one of those things where they thought it was all mechanical when they didn't really realize it was you know how they were actually functioning and how they were taught basically to be able to do it. And that's, that's where that drill went along and brought, brought it out that, Hey, you haven't been taught properly on how to run the trigger. You can shoot, you can hit the target confidently, but if you need to go along and really fire oh, repetitive shots, you're doing it the slowest way possible. And we were able to educate them. And that was a, a nice uh, win after three days to see them shooting faster. So Good. Well, hey, Matt, um, got a question for you. We've been asking all our uh, guests, can you recommend an annual conference or or something you think instructors should think about doing once a year in order to make themselves better and help their students out? So I did a lot of thinking about this as we were doing the podcast, right? And I'm going to take a little bit of a different tact with it. So rather than recommend an annual conference, I'm going to recommend what I think is the best, no pun intended, bang for your buck you can get to make yourself a better shooter and instructor, right? Mm-hmm. Local USPSA matches. They're not expensive. You know, you're looking at 100 to 200 rounds, right? One day of shooting. And you're looking at spending 20 maybe $25 on the match. And it will put you, remember how you talked a minute ago about uh, the younger officers not being exposed to someone who could shoot better Mm -hmm. and understanding what it was. One of the biggest benefits from competition is that you learn how good good actually is, right? Like before I started competing, I knew how good the national and world champions were because I'd watch them on YouTube or before YouTube, I'd watch them on the old, you know, 
Lenny McGill VHS tapes and all that yep. stuff. Right? <laughs> you know, and I, I knew how good, like, you know, Jerry Mitchellick and Jerry Barnhart and Rob Latham and, you know, Doug Koenig and all those guys were. What I didn't know was how good everybody at a local match is. Mm -hmm. And I think it will be an eye-opening experience for a lot of people if they haven't done it. And it's it will really, if you go about it without having an ego, right, without dismissing it because it it sacrifices your sacred cows, you know, your belief system. You'll learn more about how to shoot and how to train for shooting by going to one of those matches a month and talking to the top shooters. Mm -hmm. And it costs yeah. almost nothing. Yeah. And, and most of the shooters that go to those matches, uh, you know, they're not pretentious. They're very, you know, you, you be nice and talk to them and ask them a few questions and, you know, they'll tell you what they've done because yeah, they, they realize they love to help. Yeah, because yeah, they realize that, yes, they're kind of giving away their secret sauce, but they know the secret sauce isn't worth anything unless you put the time in. And yeah. that's what that's what the bottom line com comes down to. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, the secret's really hard work, but you got to work smart, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, how do you how do you go along and, you know, improve your sight picture or trigger or, you know, those types of things. So, yeah. Well, Matt, where can people find more information about you and what you're doing uh, training with uh, Greybeard Actual? All right. So the website is graybeardactual.com, and I bought both URLs. So whether you spell it with an EY or an AY, it'll still get you there. Um, I've got a full training calendar on there for the year. Um, I've got, you know, my blog is on there with a bunch of instructional posts and stuff. I have a bunch of uh, bunch of instructional videos also on my drills and like how I go about this stuff and how to do it. And I'm on Instagram as graybeard underscore actual Facebook is graybeard actual um, Twitter. Also now, I guess I had to get on Twitter as graybeard underscore actual as well. So people can find me all of those places. If they have any questions, they can reach out to me. You know, there's a contact page on the website or they can DM me on social media. And I, I always, it may take me a day or two sometimes because I get busy, but I always answer everybody. So. Mm -hmm. And if they want to have you come out and do a uh, training at their location, are you open to that? I am absolutely open to that. Yeah. Um, the one who actually handles all the scheduling is my wife. As we were discussing earlier, she's sharing to my Aussie. So if you email info at graybeardactual.com, which is also on the website. So if you don't remember, it, you can look it up there. You'll get her and she'd be happy. Like she'll send out an email with everything you need to host the class and how to go about it. And if you host the class and help us fill it, you get a free slot. Cool. And Angela also does some dynamite uh, women and beginner classes too. She so. does. She does. She's, she's a really good teacher with beginners and with women. And she's a really good shooter herself. It's, it's been really nice. To, and she didn't learn. From, I've helped coach her, but she didn't learn to shoot from me. She was already a shooter when we met. So. No, that's, that that is, that is neat to uh to see that and uh if you ever get a chance to meet angela and matt i definitely would uh, recommend it uh, met them last couple of years at the guardian conference and uh, they are good people as they say very good people well thank you so matt thank you for your time tell angela i said hello and uh hopefully we'll see you this fall at the uh, guardian conference all right thank you very much for having me on i really appreciate it take care that's a wrap for this episode, and I hope you found it interesting, my conversation with Matt Little. Do you have a topic you'd like to talk to me about or know somebody I should talk to? 
Email me your suggestions at FTP at concealedcarry.com. You can also leave us comments on our Facebook page or on our website at firetrainerpodcast.com. On our website, you can also listen to previous episodes and search our archives for those episodes. Visit our sponsors, especially Farm Trainers Podcast at FTAProtect.com and check out their instructor insurance. Establishing your business was your first step. Now you should check into the FTA coverage. And remember to use FTP10 as the promo code at checkout. We bring this podcast support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every farm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.